WAGP Beaufort. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener, for the next hour we'll be taking people's questions as it relates to their study of Scripture, to life, its application, maybe a challenge you're facing in a passage you're dealing with or trying to seek God for biblical wisdom. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone locally. It's 525-1859-843-525-1859. We have people who listen through the Internet. We live stream this station 24-7 around the world. And uh, you can, if you'd like, uh, can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. Indeed, Pastor. And uh, we, you mentioned we get a lot of calls from uh, various parts of the country. And we do have one question uh, from Gregory in Durham, New Hampshire. Uh, he wants to know, how should Christians react to the now new law passed on the same-sex marriage in all 50 states? Well, it's a good question, obviously, a question every believer should ask. Obviously, the Supreme Court of the United States is not the mouthpiece of God Almighty as to what he intends for people. Uh, the church uh, that Paul calls the pillar of the truth are those people who are to represent what God says from his word. And so they don't have the final ruling. God does. It doesn't matter what uh, the Supreme Court says, what the chief justice of the Supreme Court of the universe is all that really matters. And he has spoken. He's not stuttered. He's very, very clear on what he has said. So, you know, there can't be any compromise on our part uh, in that at this point in, in human history and in our country's history. Of course, I hope you realize the solution is not political it's biblical, it's scriptural, it's spiritual. And unless uh, we continue to share the gospel, our nation will continue into a downward spiral. I'm going to uh, address this issue this Sunday. Uh, I'm going to speak on the subject, the nation without God, and what that will look like, and what it does look like, and where we're heading apart from a national revival. So, you know, we, we live in a culture where... Uh, more and more, you know, people are liberal in their outlook of life, uh, and they go to liberal <laughs> high schools and colleges, and the media is liberal, and and our culture is producing more and more liberal people. 
certainly, you know, the Supreme Court in this five to four decision, you know, made their ruling. But in one sense, it is reflective of the culture. I mean, according to the best polling data that we have, it says now that 57 percent of Americans have no problem with homosexual marriage. Uh, that that's really terrible. And especially when you look at the breakdown of that 57 percent, what brings it as uh, low as it is, is the older generation that is basically 50 and above. When you start polling the 18 to 25 group, you discover it's more like 80 percent of those individuals have no problem with homosexual marriage. And God has a big problem with it. And so, you know, we don't hate homosexuals as Christians. We love them individually, but we hold on to our standard and we invite them to Christ. God doesn't say, clean yourself up so you can come to me. He says, come to me and I'll change your life. And that's what he is able to do. And he has the solution. Um, But, you know, we're, we're in for some turmoil, you know, years ago, even five years ago. You know, the homosexual activists were basically saying in our country, look, just allow us to live the way we want to live and we won't bother you. You know, if Christians want to have their point of view and do their thing, we understand that. We just want freedom to live the way we want to live. And of course, uh, as laws more and more have been passed in their favor, uh, then they said, look, we, we, we want to take part. We want you to take part in our weddings and uh, and we're coming after you and we want to destroy your businesses and bankrupt you. And within 48 hours of the Supreme Court ruling, leading homosexuals in this country said that they were coming after the evangelical churches in America. So that's their next step. Uh, they're they're talking about um, they, they have uh, one leading homosexual activist uh, compared it to the Bob Jones decision years ago where Bob Jones lost their tax exempt status. And since the Supreme Court basically ruled on this decision as a minority status issue, then that's potentially the next step. Uh, Evangelical churches that truly will oppose the homosexual lifestyle will lose their tax exempt status. That's where some people want to take it. And of course, even stations like this, you know, the FCC, we're going to deal with free speech issues. You know, oh, well, you can see the the thing with religious freedom is the Obama administration has redefined it. When they use the word religious freedom, they mean something totally different from every prior administration in the history of the United States. By religious freedom, they mean you can do whatever you want in the four walls of those church. But when you bring it outside of those four walls, you may not be as free as you think. And so, you know, I can I can see where this is headed. Um, you know, the mainline denominations in this country, for the most part, have no problem with homosexuality. There's a few yet to make a decision. I have no doubt the United Methodist Church, because it was so close at their last, you know, qu- quarterly meeting. I think they do it every four years. Um, I know where they're going to go in the next vote. They basically have said it because. Uh, they're they're not disciplining pastors who are engaged in gay marriage. Uh, they uh, were challenged by Frankie Schaefer, Francis Schaefer's son, who's now a total apostate. And you don't know what that guy believes, but he claims to be a United Methodist pastor. And 
Of course, they disciplined him, and then they backed down, and they said, well, I guess you can do that if that's what you want. So you know where they're going. So my point is is that all the mainline Lutherans, all the mainline Methodists, all your mainline Presbyterians and so forth, they're all in favor of gay marriage. And so the government will say, well, look, there's all these other Christian denominations, and they have no problem with it. They can have their tax-exempt uh, status, but, you know, you you— You Bible thumpers. Well, that's another story. You can believe what you want, but you can't have a tax-exempt status. Oh, you want to have a radio station? Wonderful. Just make sure you don't speak about gay marriage or the FCC will take away your license. That's, That's where it's heading. This is so radical, the agenda that they have. And, um, and of course, a a big part of the problem are true born again Christians. Number one, Some even now are acquiescing. Uh, Rick sent me an article uh, last night from the New York Times and uh, front page news. And, you know, it stated about some evangelical churches who stood strong and said, no, we're against gay marriage. And then some who say, well, we're against it. But if people want to come and serve in our church and be a part of it and members of our church, we have no problem. We're just against gay marriage. So you see, they're acquiescing on the standards of God such that, oh, yeah, you can be, you know, a Christian and uh, be gay. We, we don't approve gay marriage, but you can be a Christian who's gay. You know, it's a, it's a mixed message. So, one, Paul said, you know, if the flute, if the horn does not sound a distinct message, people won't know how to respond. And the church is not sending a clear message. Many are backing down. And the biggest fault, in my view, of evangelicalism in America is we've just stopped sharing the gospel. The average Christian in America no longer shares his faith. And if the average Christian in America no longer engages people with their only help, hope of salvation, then the culture will disintegrate. And that's what's happening. Why is the average not, Christian not sharing his faith? Well, he's too consumed with other things. He or she is uh, uh, lukewarm in the entertainments of the world have captured their hearts. And so they've lost their passion to share Christ like they need to. And that's what has been happening. You know, there was a time in America when every evangelical church had, you know, weekly outreaches and uh, weekly plans to get together with people and take them through the gospel. And th- that is so infrequent now. It is so unusual. When, when people ask me, pastors ask me about um, our meet, meet the pastor meeting where we take people through the plan of salvation. They say, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> great idea, man. This is what we used to do as evangelical Christians. Um, but that's where we're headed. And um, God is on his throne. He is sovereign. Yeah, the Supreme Court made a decision, but really the American people have been making a decision. And the Supreme Court put their finger up into the air, five of the justices, and followed the prevailing winds of the culture, and they basically said yes to it. But I'm telling you, you haven't seen anything yet. We haven't even begun to see the horror that lays in front of us, and that's what I'm going to be speaking on Sunday Uh, a nation without God. And uh, I will show you biblically where we are going as a nation. And we need to be in tune with this. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Well, you said that uh, God is sovereign. God is in control. And that kind of brings us to a question from 
another listener from Jeremiah 7, verses 30 through 34. Uh, this person writes about verse 31. It says, he says, it strikes me that God didn't know that humans were going to burn their children. What do you think? Was God surprised? No, God is never surprised. Uh, I made a statement on Sunday. We were talking about prayer, and I just said, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? So God is not surprised by anything. Now, there are times when sometimes the Scripture uses what we, we call anthropomorphisms, where God will um, put himself in human terms in order to communicate a truth, in order to em- emphasize a truth. So like when it says God repented, God changed his mind. Uh, that's an anthropomorphism. That's uh, God using human terms in order to communicate a truth. And, and, and throughout the Hebrew scripture, you will find different types of figures of speech. Uh, there, a man by the name of Bullinger a hundred years ago categorized all the different kinds of figures of speech in the Old Testament. Did a great, uh, great service to the body of Christ. Still a great book to own. Uh, like the trees clap their hands for joy. Well, the trees don't obviously have hands, and so God will often use figures. And so in in Jeremiah 7, when God describes uh, what had taken place, it said, For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnon to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will be no more called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnon, but the valley of slaughter. And on it goes. So when it says here that, you know, it did not come into my mind, he's basically saying, this was never, ever, ever my purpose. He's not saying as an omniscient God, literally it says it did not come into my heart, uh, not mind, but the Hebrew actually reads heart. And uh, let me see. Yeah. Here in the margin of the NASB, in fact, they even note that. Uh, but when God says it didn't come into my heart, he, he's saying, look, what you did is so sickening to me. Um, it's so detestable to me. That does not represent who I am. And because it does not represent who I am and you as my people are supposed to be representing who I am. And we could say the same thing today with uh, the homosexual issue. God's people are to represent where he stands, not what the culture thinks. And uh, because of that, God brought great judgment. But God is omniscient. He never learns anything. He's never surprised by anything. God's not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, my, I didn't know the Supreme Court is going to do that. We, we need to call an emergency meeting of the Holy Trinity. No, God, God is, uh, he's on his throne and he knows what he's about. And as I will show you on Sunday, if you have ears to hear, we are actually seeing the plan of God unfolded. Um, God, what God is allowing to take place right now. Um, and it's going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse, and we need to be braced and ready for it. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. as has Lisa from Rinkin, Georgia. She's got a lengthy question. I'm going to just give the uh, basics of it, but you can always uh, read the entire question and re-listen to this program online at net. 
Lisa writes that recently in her adult Sunday school class, she discussed and studied 1 Timothy 3.2, and uh, they camped on the phrase, husband of one wife. Now, this all left her kind of unsettled because there was a lot of different disagreements and uh, interpretations by various uh, members of the class, including a couple of elders. Um, And some of the different things uh, said was, well, uh, this could mean a civil ceremony with intimacy. Uh, It could be a Christian ceremony with intimacy. Um, It could be, um, you know, a a marriage to another, a physical intimate union without a legal marriage. Um, And then it then went down to um, what uh, one particular elder had indicated Uh, He shared that he thinks that the intent of the phrase was not necessarily literal, but that it expressed a standard of the condition of the heart to be faithful to the current wife if married, whether former wife died or past divorce was unavoidable, and uh, that each uh, case needed to be examined individually versus a legalistic stand of only one wife in all cases. And so what exactly does it mean in relation to a husband of one wife as far as uh, becoming uh, an elder. Well, Paul mentions the qualification in both First uh, Timothy three and in Titus one. In First Timothy three and Titus one, he deals with the qualifications for an elder. The word elder, pastor, bishop—that's uh, a term that's used interchangeably in the New Testament of the same office. I, I know sometimes uh, there are denominations that have a, a pastor, and then there's kind of a super pastor, and we call him a bishop, but. That kind of distinction is not found in the New Testament clearly because uh, you will find in within a matter of verses uh, the same term. Like, for instance, if a it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer or you could translate that a bishop, he does a fine thing. And then he says an overseer must be and he goes on, he gives the, the qualifications in uh, when he writes to uh, to Titus in Titus chapter one, he uses a different term. He uses the term appoint elders in every city. It's not the word overseer. And the Greek word is distinctly different, but it's referring to the same office and he gives the same qualifications. And when you look at Acts chapter 20, within two sentences, he refers to the people as bishops or overseers. And the next um, sentence, he refers to them as elders. And then he uses the verb for, for pastors in verb form. So it's all the same office in the New Testament. And he says an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, so forth, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle and contentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. For he says, if a, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so the phrase, the husband of one wife, in the Greek New Testament, it literally says a one-woman man. And it has been interpreted in various ways in the history of the church. Uh, Roman Catholics, of course, who do not, uh, for the most part, there, there is like one little segment of uh, Catholicism where the priests get married and they're technically under the Pope. But for the most part, Roman Catholic priests, bishops, cardinals do not marry. And with that said, how do they justify that in light of the qualifications for an elder, for a bishop? 
Uh, and of course, they make a distinction between a pastor and a bishop, but still the principle that is before us is still the same. And they spiritualize the text and they say, well, basically the priest, so to speak, uh, is married to the church. And then they further spiritualize the text, which they're forced to do because he will go on and he says, look, if one does not know how to manage his own house, keeping his children under control, how will he be able to manage the household of God? How will he take care of God's church? And of course, they have to spiritualize that. And they say, well, he, he's proven himself to be able to manage a congregation. And so like in Catholicism, before a man becomes a priest, he becomes a deacon. And then later on, that deacon is ordained to be a, a priest or what we would call a pastor. But again, you really abuse the text when you come to that conclusion. Uh, that's not the plain reading of the text. And if you want to spiritualize the Bible like that, you can make the Bible mean anything you want. So most evangelicals, of course, immediately throw that out as a possible interpretation. A second interpretation that some have held is that this is an exclusion from a single person serving in the office of elder or pastor. And so when he says an elder must be the husband of one wife or a one woman man, they argue that he has to be married. Well, again, the problem with that is really twofold. Number one, the chief elder himself was not married. The chief shepherd, the chief pastor, Jesus was single. For that matter, the apostle Paul was not married. Uh, in First Corinthians 7, he said, I wish all men were as I. And he argues uh, that it's really a blessing if God has gifted you. This is not a spiritual gift. It's not so much what God does through you as much as God does to you. And God gives some men, some women, the ability physically to remain single their whole life. But Paul said, if you don't have that gift, it's better to be married than to burn with desire. But he says, it's a wonderful thing because you can give undistracted devotion to the work of the Lord. You say, but he was an apostle. Yes, he was an apostle, but he was also an elder. He was also a pastor. All, all apostles were pastors. Not all pastors, of course, are apostles because to be an apostle you had to have been personally selected by Christ. You had to seen him, have witnessed him in his resurrection body. And if indeed those things were true and he selected you, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle could do. Uh, but again, uh, Paul was an elder, just like Peter will say in 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ. So Peter recognized that as an apostle, he was also an elder. He was a, he was a pastor. So to say that this is um, dealing, uh, giving a prohibition against a single person serving in the office is just not tenable to what we read in the New Testament. And let me just also add to that, that you would expect Paul to address a man and his family because the norm for God as God created us, is to get married in this life. It's not to be single our entire life. Uh, God created a man to leave his father and mother and to cleave to his wife, and the two would become one. And that's God's pattern. So to be single is an exception, but it is an important exception that we should acknowledge because sometimes there are married people who are trying their best to uh, marry off some single people that God has not called to be married. I, I think of John R.W. Stott, 
Uh, he was a great expositor, wrote around 40 books in his lifetime before he died a few years ago. And God used him in a mighty way as a single pastor in the Church of England and uh, was used in a great way also to defend the biblical orthodoxy in the midst of a denomination that had basically gone south. So to say that, well, the priest is married to the church and the wife is the church is silly. To say that this is a prohibition against a single man being involved in full-time pastoral ministry does not let Scripture interpret Scripture. A third position that has been held in the history of the church is that this is an exclusion of a man who lost his wife and married again. And so the thought is, well, if I died and I got married again, then I would no longer be a one woman man and therefore could not serve in the office of elder. The problem with that is that the reverse phrase is used in first Timothy chapter five and in first Timothy five, he talks about widows who are worthy of the church support honor widows who are widows indeed. And by widows, indeed, number one, they don't have children or grandchildren who can take care of them, uh, because if they have children or grandchildren who can take care of them, then that's their responsibility and not the churches. And Paul will say that if a man, if a person, uh, if anyone does not provide for his own, uh, especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Uh, we often take that text of scripture and we apply it downward. And that's cer- certainly a legitimate application, but it's an original context. It's being applied upward. Um, I had to last week, um, uh, g- a week ago last Sunday, got on the airplane and flew to uh, New England to, to help my almost 88 year old mother because that was a priority and it was a short you know, 48 hour visit, but she had fallen. And, and part of my responsibility was to care for her, to take care of her, to make sure her needs were being met. And that's, that's every Christian's responsibility, or sometimes it's grandchildren who are doing that. But then he goes on and he further defines a widow. Indeed, Uh, let a widow put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a good repute, having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the feet of the saints, if she's assisted those in distress and so forth. So these widows indeed who have no children to care for them, they're 60 and above. And not only are they 60 and above, but there's certain characteristics that were true of them in their service to the church. And of course, um, she's described as the wife of one man or literally a one wife um, woman, a a one man woman. Um, And so, again, the characteristic is the same. But if she's a younger widow, then she should be encouraged to get married. So God describes younger widows as having a responsibility to to remarry, Uh, that there is a there is a place for that, that that's not against the plan of God that that's not something that should be looked down upon. 
but um, refuse, he says, to put young widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires in regard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation. So again, there's a sex drive and a practical application on how to fulfill it. So I don't think Paul is discouraging younger widows from ultimately being able to be put on the list by encouraging them as younger widows to remarry and then later on in life disqualifying them from the honor roll. So whatever it means for one, it means for the other. So I don't think you can say that this is an exclusion of a man who lost his wife and then he remarries. Um, one interpretation that's very, very much a minority interpretation is the view that he's a one kind of um, woman in his heart. In other words, a non-flirtatious, non-lustful person, which it sounds like someone there in your church brought up. I don't think that's in view because, number one, uh, he has said that an elder must have self-control. So he's already stated that. So no need to repeat himself over again. Some have said, well, this is a prohibition against bigamy, two wives, or a prohibition against polygamy, three or more wives. Certainly that's not in view because, uh, number one, bigamy and polygamy were against Roman law, uh, much like, at least right now, though it's being challenged in one state, it's against the law to be involved in polygamous marriage. Though, look, if you can marry your your girlfriend is a woman or your boyfriend is a man. Why, why not be able to have four or five wives? That, that's where we're going next. And um, certainly Scalia recognized that some years ago in one of his statements against uh, homosexual marriage. Well, you know, if 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 uh, it's OK to marry your, your your your, you know, someone of the same sex, why not marry multiple wives? And it was a legitimate point he made, and he could see where it was going. So um, what does it mean then? Well, I think it, and, and by the way, if someone were a polygamist or bigamist, Paul wouldn't be saying, well, you know, as long as they're not a bigamist and polygamist, they can be considered for uh, being a possible elder. No, they would be considered for church discipline. In fact, under the New Covenant, they wouldn't even be considered born again. Yet that is the most popular view that people take in terms of the six interpretations I'm running through here in my mind. I wrote a paper on this, so I was trying to read, recap each of the major views in the history of the church. Historically, for almost 1,900 years, when you read the church fathers, those are the people who lived after the apostles, and they're really divided into two groups, the early church fathers and the late church fathers. They all said that this was a prohibition of someone who was on a second marriage via divorce. All of the Protestant reformers, Luther, Calvin, Swingley, Melanchthon, they all said that this was a prohibition against someone who was on a second marriage through divorce. Why is it because God is down on divorced people? No, 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 no. Um, it's simply because God is down on marriages breaking apart. I, the God of Israel, hate divorce, Malachi 2.16 says. And so God wants to model the ideal. If a man does not know how to manage his own house, how will he manage the church of God? He can't. In other words, if he can't function properly in a limited realm, don't expand it. If he can't make Christianity work in his own home, 
don't export his Christianity into a leadership position in the church. That's the point he's trying to make. So it's, it's much like I will often tell people capital punishment. When God is in favor of capital punishment, and he is in spite of what the current pope is saying, God is in favor of capital punishment under certain parameters, not just anything, but the parameters given. I have a whole sermon on that. If you want to go and listen to the Romans series, click on Romans 13 and you'll hear some messages and I walk through the whole thing. Um, It's not because he's down on life. It's because he's up on life. And he knows that when capital punishment is biblically and honestly and effectively applied in, in many of those situations we do not have in our country, for instance, someone is on death row and they can be on death row for who knows how long. How long will it be before this Boston Marathon bomber actually loses his life? I mean, he's been proven guilty beyond a question of a doubt. And unfortunately, it may be years, maybe it will be 10 years before we'll actually see his death as he goes through the appeals system. And the Bible tells us that when a crime is committed in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter eight, and there's not swift punishment, then it takes away all the motivation from the sons of men to do evil. They, they I, I can pull it off. Look, if I, if, if I, if I miss it, it's going to be a long time before I see any punishment. Uh, one of the points brought up here in the question from this individual in Georgia said, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. One of the elders or pastors said, because, well, what about the guy who's, you know, been, you know, sexually exploiting women before he's married and then he gets married. Now he qualifies. Well, no, not immediately. Not if he's a new Christian, not a new convert. And he has to be able to demonstrate self-control and he has to be able to demonstrate that he's matured spiritually, not just in this one area, but there are actually 21 qualifications for an elder. So we shouldn't simply ask, is the person divorced? Uh, And then in addition to that, um, the statement that is made here misunderstands what a marriage is. A marriage is not a marriage because two people had some kind of intimate relationship. A marriage is a covenant that two people make with God. That's what makes a marriage a marriage where a couple agree as husband and wife to live together before God. That's what makes a marriage a marriage. So yes, potentially someone could have had, you know, 50 immoral relationships come to Christ, had their lives totally transformed matured in their faith where they meet these 21 qualifications. These are not suggestions. These things must be true in a person's life and, and then qualify to be an elder or a pastor. But if someone has broken the marriage covenant, something that God hates and something that God wants to protect. And he highlights that truth by only allowing people who have been on one marriage in that relationship, then, then, that's to protect. That's for our good. Anyway, um, you might want to listen to some of my messages on First uh, Timothy or Titus, and those are available online at searchthescriptures.org. All right, very good. We've got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, based on your previous uh, answer, uh, it reminded me of something I saw on TV, a pastor came up, and, I, and it sounded like a theory to me, but he was saying that the Apostle Paul, when he said uh, during scriptures, uh, I, am, I was a 
Pharisee among Pharisees. And his pastor went on to say that if he was a true uh, uh, straight-laced, hard-nosed Pharisee, that they would have acknowledged what God said about, you know, you know, you should be married. So this pastor went on to assume, and he he said, of course, this is speculation, but... It is speculation, because Josephus notes that there's over 6,000 Pharisees in the day of Christ, and many of them are single. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I know where you're going with this, because he said that, you know, there was speculation that the Apostle Paul may have been married, and after he came to Christ, that his wife might have not liked his new faith or whatever, but I wonder if you had ever heard about that theory. Yeah, I have, and that's all it is. It's it's not even a theory. It's just an abuse and mishandling of Scripture because, again, those living closest to the apostles would have understood more clearly maybe what some things that today we might consider to be somewhat ambiguous those who lived closest to the apostles and heard them preach and teach are more likely to have been in touch with what they meant by certain phrases. And so all the church fathers, there's no exceptions, all believed that the husband of one wife was an exclusion from a divorced person. And again, if Paul was an elder, and he was, like Peter was an elder, and as I said earlier, all apostles were pastors, but not all pastors obviously are apostles, then he would have excluded himself from ministry. But he didn't. He was an apostle and an elder of the body in the body of Christ, and which means that it, there was not an issue of Paul having been married and then divorced. So people who do that really impugn the character of the Apostle Paul. And one of the reasons they do that is because I don't think that's their intention. But what they are dealing with is, you know, I got a list this morning of uh, some of the deacons had put together some some names of some people that they wanted myself and the elders to take a look at in terms of possible future deacons and there was about 40 names and I just started going down the list and 21 of them have already had been divorced. And now most of them didn't know that. Um, but you know, I don't think probably any of them knew that because they, they know how we historically have interpreted this phrase and how the church has historically interpreted the phrase. So um, what has happened today is that the sins of the culture have come into the church And of course, if you reach the culture for Christ, then that's going to take place. If you lived in America a hundred years ago, only one in a hundred marriages ever got got a divorce. Even when I was a child in grammar school, when people spoke of divorce, it was almost in a whisper like, hey, you know, she's been married before, but not like that today. Why? Because it's so commonplace with over now 50 out of a hundred marriages end in divorce. So because it's so widespread, Nobody wants to be unpopular. Nobody wants to stand up in the pulpit and say, look, this is wrong um, to allow a divorced person to be an elder. Now, some people carry that to extremes. And the only exclusion for a person in the local assembly is in the office of elder or deacon, because there's only two offices in the New Testament church. There are no more. Uh, There was a third at one time, the apostles, but there's no apostles today. So in the two offices in the New Testament church, the office of elder and deacon, God wants to model 
the ideal because he's not down on divorced people. He's up on them. And divorced people tell me all the time, they say, Pastor, if you could spare people from the agony, from the pain, from the hurt. And listen, going through a divorce is worse than going through death for most people because you're tearing apart two living people. And that's why God calls it treachery. He calls it a violent act in the book of Malachi. It is so hurtful, and it's not just hurtful to the two people who are torn apart. God also sees the kids, as Malachi points out, and God knows how hurtful it is to the children. But you see, we have pastors today who want to like, who like to be liked. They don't have the guts to stand up in the pulpit and to call sin, sin anymore. And, and some of them can't because they're on second marriages, and they're disqualified to serve as a pastor. And we're going to see the same thing with this gay issue. When this becomes more and more the byline of the culture, 57% of Americans, 80% of those 18 to 25, they're in favor of gay marriage. So if I'm pastoring a church and I want to reach young people, they're my target audience. And I stand up and preach against homosexuality. Whoa, Bubba. A lot of folks are not going to like that. And I'm not going to grow my church. But you see, God is the one who gives the increase. God is the one who grows the true church. And God also warns, as we'll speak about this coming Sunday, of a generation of people who will be prepared to give themselves to the Antichrist. And I believe that generation is being prepared. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We have an emailed question from James. He writes, my sister and her husband attended your church years ago. I attended a couple of times when I visited and really enjoyed your teachings. I divorced my first spouse after she had repeated sexual relationships with other men. I remarried a couple of years later, and my current wife has felt that our marriage is not sanctioned by God. I've tried to point her to Matthew 19.9 as the answer to her dilemma, but she says that she wants to know what the original scriptures say exactly because people mess up translations. God immediately brought you to mind because of your teaching style and previous sermons that I've heard. You might want to listen to a message that should be online now that I gave on Father's Day. It's called Dads in Divorce. I suppose I could have called it Mothers in Divorce, but but really, for the most part, most divorces are initiated by men. And I think our Lord recognized that because he repeatedly made statements that when a man divorces his wife and marries another... Um, It is true that when you read the New Testament, the exception clauses are found only in Matthew's gospel. There is no exception in Mark. And so if you're reading Mark's account, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Uh, when Luke addresses the subject, John doesn't. Luke sixteen eighteen. everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Uh, this is consistent, of course, with what we read in Romans 7, uh, 1 through 4, where Paul says that if a married woman be joined to another man, she'll be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies and she's joined or married to another man, she'll not become not be called an adulteress. Why? Because um, death dissolves the marriage bond. So then the question becomes the two times the exception clause is found in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. What does it refer to and why doesn't Mark and Luke 
reference it. Well, some people read the exception clause, as you've implied in your statement here, to your wife. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another woman commits adultery. But in every English translation, you will see two different words. The word adultery is not repeated twice in Matthew 19.9. It will say things like, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, except for sexual immorality, except for fornication, and marries another commits adultery. So um, when you take all the air out of the balloon without being too simplistic, there are basically three major positions that people today hold. Some say that if there was sexual immorality, i.e. adultery, after the marriage bond had been initiated, after two people were married, that that allows the innocent party and those who are trying to be faithful to the scripture, they would say the innocent party only, freedom to remarry. Um, That's a common position. It's probably the most common position today in evangelicalism. Uh, the, the problem with that is it does not recognize the distinction between the two words. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, moi, uh, for um, porneia and marries another, commits moikeia. So he uses two different distinct words. So some, therefore, say, well, the sexual immorality, since the word porneia, sexual immorality, can refer in a broad realm to sexual immorality, that other things could be involved. Um, Everything from uh, lusting in your heart after another woman to uh, kissing another woman to having some other type of intimate act, any kind of sexual immorality. Well, the, there's a problem with that, obviously. Um, and so a third position is held, and that is in reference to uh, the betrothal period, that there is a refined use of the word porneia, words like English, receive their meaning in context. When I refer to a trunk, am I referring to what's out in front of an elephant, what's at the bottom of a tree, what's behind a car, what's up on a sailor's shoulder? Well, it all depends on the context. Well, there are some words in Greek and Hebrew that always mean the same thing no matter what, but then there are other words in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, I might have, add, though I don't know Aramaic, uh, I only have learned Hebrew and Greek, but <clears throat> I've studied the languages enough to know how they interplay with each other. There are some words that take on a different meaning in a different context, like the word flesh. Does it mean your skin that covers your skeleton? Sometimes in the Bible. Sometimes it refers to your whole person. More often than not, it refers to your sin nature within. Sometimes it refers to a worldly point of view or perspective. Context determines, sarks, what it means. Uh, the word porneia, here translated immorality in the NASB, uh, translated fornication in the uh, King James Version, uh, can have a refined meaning. For instance, in John 8, a text that no one would debate linguistically, the Pharisees said, uh, Jesus, you know, we weren't born of porneia. We weren't born of fornication. So 30 years after Mary and Joseph had had the Lord Jesus and he had begun his public ministry, there was still a rumor floating around that Jesus was the byproduct, not of Joseph, um, as they thought because it should have happened because, of course, they didn't believe in the miraculous virgin birth, but that Mary had been messing around with another man. 
and that during the betrothal period, she had gotten pregnant. And so there, very clearly, the word porneia doesn't refer just to any kind of sexual immorality, but sexual immorality during the betrothal period. In fact, uh, even a few chapters before here, in uh, Matthew chapter uh, 15, Jesus is describing the heart of man and what it is like. And he says, out of the heart of man comes uh, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, uh, moikeia there. Uh, more K-I, actually, plural, fornications, point A-I, fornications. So thefts, false witnesses. So he uses in the same sentence adulteries and fornications. If he just meant all sexual immorality, he would have just used one word. But he's using the two words because they can mean two different things. And so context is everything. So I take it that the exception clause is found only in Matthew because he's referring to someone who during the betrothal period had been unfaithful. So when someone was betrothed, it was usually for the course of a year. I gave the man a chance to go and prepare a place for his bride, but it also gave the uh, testimony to the couple that their relationship was pure, that neither of them had been unfaithful in any respect so that she didn't, 12 months after the betrothal had taken place, shown up at the marriage altar pregnant. And so uh, I take it that the exception here was in reference to someone who had been unfaithful since only Jews and not Gentiles practiced betrothal. Betrothal is not like engagement in our day. And sometimes our English translations for the Greek word uh, for betrothal, they render it engagement. But that's a little bit weak. Because unlike engagements that are made to be broken and unlike engagements where you're not considered husband and wife in a betrothal, you are husband and wife, but you're not in the truest sense married because the relationship had not been consummated. And so Joseph is called the husband of Mary when they're betrothed and there are four like Old Testament examples. And so when he finds out that Mary's pregnant, he assumes right off, well, she's been unfaithful. And so... I have to put her away. I have to divorce her. But because he cares for her and loves her, yet wanting to be a righteous man and to do what God says, he's going to do it secretly. And then, of course, um, the angel comes and reveals to him that the pregnancy is supernatural, not by a human father, but by God, the Holy Spirit. And he responds, of course, in faith. And he believes what the angel tells him from God. So there really are no exceptions today. With that said, you're in a marriage and your marriage is now the will of God. You cannot unscramble eggs. You can't even go back to your first wife, even if reconciliation were possible, meaning she had not been remarried um, because you have remarried. And God forbids that, forbids that in uh, Deuteronomy 24. Otherwise, you have a legalized form of adultery where you say, well, I'm going to dump my wife. I'm going to marry again. I guess I'll mess around with wife number two. Oh, I'm tired of her. I think I'll go back to wife number one. No, God calls that an abomination. So you can't unscramble eggs. And so whatever state you're in, that's now the will of God for your life. With that said, there there are many Christians who have been eternally forgiven, but they really haven't dealt with some sins where they need to be cleansed. And there are many times after we're saved that the Spirit of God brings to our mind issues that we need to deal with, 
Look at the Ephesian Christians where almost two years after their conversion, they're dealing with some issues in their life where they burn all the magic books and the things that they were engaged in. The little trinkets and things they had saved in their homes and now they destroy them. Um, There are issues sometimes after we're saved where we've rationalized our second marriage and we say, well, my ex was this, my ex was that, you know, and, and we need to come clean. We need to be able to tell our children and our grandchildren, look, God's ideal was one man, one woman until death separates us. And second marriages are wrong as long as our previous spouses are alive. But the wonder of it all is that God has forgiven me and God has given me a fresh start. And what God has called clean, let no man call unclean. But you don't use that as a motivation to continue to pursue sin. You use that as a motivation to live holy for the grace of God that brings salvation instructs us. It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in the present age. And one of the things that has given uh, this whole gay equality marriage thing, whatever they want to call it, uh, some footing is the travesty amongst heterosexual marriages. And so the argument, well, there's security and a heterosexual home and the homosexual community says, oh, really? Tell me about it. Uh, in which in which marriage is there a security for the child? And so it's the sin in the heterosexual society, among other things, that helped foster and give gave them a standing to continue uh, in their own evil ways. All right. We've got time for one quick question. In 2 Samuel 27 through 36... Uh, well, it doesn't say which chapter, but it says, it says, what happens to your two sons will be assigned to you. What did Eli do wrong to cause uh, his sons to be killed? Phineas he, and Hoffman. He, he, he refused to rebuke his sons. As an adult father, his sons, who were priests, uh, were messing around with the women who came to the temple. And they were doing evil in God's sight in, in the prophet knew it, but he, uh, Eli knew it, but he did nothing about it. The priest knew it, but he did nothing about it. And he should have rebuked those sons. It didn't matter that they weren't, so to speak, under his roof. You still have a responsibility to your kids, just like they have a responsibility to you their entire lives. Uh, a child is to honor his father and mother their entire lives. It doesn't matter that they've started a new home, that they've left father and mother. It doesn't mean they've abandoned them. There's still some responsibility upward and there is some responsibility downward. And when a father knows his son, his daughter is in sin and he refuses to rebuke him, then he is doing what is wrong and he is doing what is evil. And this was an evil of evils. And um, and he let it go. And so he wasn't going to rebuke him. Well, God did. And it was a terrible day in the life of that family. Well, we're out of time for today. Uh, You've been listening to the Bible line. This will be rebroadcast later. You can go online at WAGP.net and click on today's date and listen to the entire Bible line again. People email their